You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Over the weekend, an oil leak was reported a few miles off the coast of Huntington Beach in the OC. Don't call it that. Well, over 100,000 gallons spilled into the sea, killing birds and fish. There's a class action lawsuit being put together, and the governor is renewing calls to move away from any of the dirty stuff in California. It's time once and for all to disabuse ourselves that this has to be part of our future. This is part of our past. We want to know why this kind of thing just keeps happening in America. So we reached out to Sam Ori. I'm the executive director of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. Sam, why does this kind of thing keep happening in America? Because over time, we've accepted a certain level of risk in terms of the energy infrastructure, the fuel production and distribution infrastructure that supports our way of life. And the current energy system is a heavily fossil fuel dominated energy system Oil is, at this point in the U.S. especially, is kind of the big dog. 90% of the fuel that's delivered to our transportation system today is oil-based fuel, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel. Yes, we have more electric cars than we used to. Yes, we have uh, some amount of ethanol that's blended into gasoline. But at the end of the day, they're rounding errors compared to the, to the oil-based fuels that power the economy. And so, you know, producing and getting that oil into markets entails lots of infrastructure, and we've kind of accepted a certain level of risk. Over time, the amount of risk that we accept and the ways that we you know, balance costs and benefits of that system have changed. But that, at the end of the day, oil is, is king in our economy, and we've accepted the risks of living the way that we do. Well, all right. Good, uncomplicated answer. I want to talk about why we've chosen to live with this amount of risk, but tell me how we got into offshore drilling to begin with. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. Now, you have a great chance here. But bear in mind, you can lose it all if you're not careful. The first thing people should understand is that many of the fields where production occurred in the early stages of the United States oil industry, which was, was all on shore, started in Pennsylvania. East of Williston here, south of Tioga, in the southwest of Six. There's a fair chance of striking oil in a number of reservoir rocks. 
uh, moved to Indiana, parts of Illinois, you know, eventually you know, Texas and other places, California. Most of our uh, operation is underground. The fields are still yours. You can go right on farming. And if you should hit oil? You get the standard royalty, one-eighth of every barrel. But as you got closer to the coast, a lot of those fields that were developed, they're way underground. So it's not like they, there's some border where you hit the water and the field stops. Actually, we start out in offshore drilling in exactly the same way as if we were drilling onshore. And then once we've got a likely spot, we can do either of two things. We can either drill from the land or we can actually go out in the water and drill. The fields that they were developing onshore, uh, people who were drilling for oil realized these things extend out into the water. Actually, like in the late 1800s, 1896, the very first offshore wells in the U.S. were drilled uh, by oil derricks on wooden piers that extended out from the shore into a couple hundred feet of water in Summerland, California. In one sense, that was the first offshore well that was drilled in the United States. The first freestanding facility that was producing oil came much later, 1938, the first production of offshore by a freestanding facility in 14 feet of water, about a mile and a half uh, off the coast of Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico. At that point, is anyone regulating this new and very dangerous industry? At that point, the states that are adjacent to those waters offshore are regulating the production uh, off their coast, and especially, obviously, in cases where people are just building a pier out into very shallow water, even in the case of a mile and a half off the coast of Louisiana, at that point, the 1930s, it's still regulated by the states. And does that at some point change? Yeah, it changes in the Truman administration. At that point, there comes an awareness that the United States is sitting on a gold mine. Gasoline, the biggest seller of the industry, though far improved over what it was a quarter century ago, is still one of the biggest bargains on your shopping list. Another example of how oil serves you. There's a couple of seminal pieces of legislation, the Submerged Lands Act uh, and then the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act uh, that are passed in 1953 that define all of this and create the system of producing, leasing, regulating oil and gas in federal waters, which this is a sort of an arcane detail, but for the most part, federal waters start about three nautical miles off the coast of, of a given state. Uh, the only exception that was agreed in the original legislation was for Texas and one part of Florida and the Panhandle, which get a state boundary of nine nautical miles out into the ocean. But everywhere else in the U.S., it's three miles. And then the federal government controls everything outside of that. Once the federal government gets involved in offshore drilling in earnest, does that dramatically increase how much offshore drilling is happening? I mean, sure, regulatory certainty maybe played some role, but it's really the, the advancements in technology that occur over the coming decades. End of the 1960s, uh, you have really a, a huge leasing bonanza in the United States in the offshore. And I mean, the way the federal regulation works uh, and the way that leasing works in federal, in federal lands at a very high level is that companies are required to, you know, they bid for the tracks. They pay, um, you know, the, the tracks go to the highest bidder. So that's called a bonus bid. Uh, if, you, if you win that track, you then pay what you bid. So you pay that, you pay a rental fee once you take control of the track, and then you pay production royalties on, you know, on any oil and gas that are produced there. Stewardship of the environment was, a lot of times was couched in this word conservation. And at the time, conservation meant something very specific, which was really conserving the oil. I mean, making sure that, you know, the oil is produced in a, in a responsible manner from the, from the perspective of, like, not wasting any of the oil for the benefit of the country. 
How does that change? It changes in 1969, uh, which is a, really the first seminal catastrophe for the U.S. offshore oil and gas industry, uh, the Union oil spill in Santa Barbara. We woke up that morning and it smelled like tar and went outside. I thought someone perhaps was tarring the road. They're doing some work, pulling up some pipe out of their well off the coast of Santa Barbara. There's a pressure incident that's not properly kind of managed. And the next thing you know, you have a blowout. Oil is still bubbling up from the floor of the Santa Barbara Channel at the rate of nearly 4,000 gallons a day. The, oil flows the blowout was enough that it created kind of fissures around the well on the seafloor. Over the course of the coming days, the well spills uh, about 4 million gallons into the waters off the coast of Santa Barbara. It's an 800-square-mile oil slick that fouls like 30 miles of California beaches. It was black tar. It was thick black tar covering everything. What's the reaction? This is happening right at the time, the 1960s, where the environmental movement is just getting kind of started. And this is one of the very catalyzing, I would say, events for the environmental movement. By the following year, the first Earth Day was observed by hundreds of thousands of Americans, and politicians took note of the movement's growing power. And so over the course of the coming, you know, the coming year or two years, there's just a huge amount of environmental regulation that passes. And I, I'm not sure, I, I guess I wouldn't say that, you know, you can tie all of it back just to the oil spill, but the oil spill was a huge, you know, catalyzer um, of activity. So the National Environmental Policy Act was passed by Nixon or signed by Nixon on January 1st, 1970. Um, you know, Safe Drinking, Safe Drinking Water Act, 1974, Coastal Zone Management Act, 1972, the Clean Air Act, 1970. I mean, there's really just a flurry of, you know, environmental protections that are put into place in the early 1970s. Okay, but despite this regulatory push, this isn't the last time this country sees an offshore oil spill of this magnitude, right? 1989, 20 years later, Exxon Valdez runs aground in Prince William Sound, Alaska, and dumps 11 million gallons of oil uh, onto the coast and into the water uh, in Prince William Sound, Alaska. The tanker, the Exxon Valdez, had just loaded more than a million barrels of Alaskan crude. It was about 25 miles from the Valdez terminal and was apparently trying to dodge ice flows from the nearby Columbia Glacier when it ran aground. Huge catastrophe. I think that's probably my first recollection of a major national news event that I watched on TV. The crews have not arrived yet to begin cleaning the slime off the island's beaches and rocks. That probably won't happen until next week. Exxon says it cannot do the job in a hasty, haphazard manner. And, you know, 11 million gallons, and uh, that's a pretty major spill. Again, the Santa Barbara spill that, you know, we talked about a minute ago, four, four million gallons. So Valdez is a huge spill. Day 10 of the oil spill crisis and the cleanup effort still just beginning. A few crews are on a few beaches removing a little bit of oil, but there are hundreds of miles of affected coastline. That, I think, really ushered in some changes that, uh, that had an even greater impact than the Santa Barbara oil spill. Immediately after Exxon Valdez, uh, Congress signs and the president signs into law the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. And it has a huge amount of uh, reform and new rules around liability. It's really the first time for a lot of the different parts of the U.S. offshore oil and gas system, right? Uh, platforms that drill, pipelines that carry oil, tankers that carry oil. This whole, the whole system 
uh, is governed by a regime after 1990 that puts liability on these guys for accidents. And when you look at the spill data uh, from the Coast Guard, from other federal sources, you see a big change following 1990. There's a big drop in the volume of, of oil that's going into the water post-1990. And, you know, in particular from, uh, from tankers and from other, from, from other boat traffic, but not just from those, from, from all sources. The Oil Pollution Act of 1990 strengthened requirements for oil spill preparation and planning, increased U.S. Coast Guard response capability, and required double hulls on new oil tankers. The oil okay, so Santa Barbara, 1969, gets the country a bunch of new regulations. 20 years later, Exxon Valdez creates even more regulations, but just about 20 years after that, None of that is enough to stop what I believe is the biggest oil spill in the history of the petroleum industry from taking place off the shore of the United States. Certainly the biggest spill in U.S. history. 150 million gallons from the Deepwater Horizon accident that happened in 2010. 50 miles south of Louisiana, a massive explosion lit up the sky. 126 workers were doing routine drilling on the oil platform before it was engulfed by smoke and flames. Semi-submersible drilling rig called the Deepwater Horizon has a catastrophic blowout, leads to the death of 11 rig workers. The rig sinks in about 5,000 feet of water, uh, severs the connection to the seafloor, and you know, over the coming 80 days or so, about 4 million barrels of crude oil, so about 150 million gallons, are released into the Gulf of Mexico. Workers on another rig, 30 miles away, could also see the explosion, saying it looked like a volcano erupting. And like Exxon Valdez and, and Santa Barbara before it, does this too lead to a bunch of new regulations? It does lead to new regulations, definitely. It also leads to a fundamental rethink of how the regulation of the industry is structured. A more fundamental issue was the conflict of interest that arose from having one agency in charge of not only maximizing production. When Secretary Salazar took office, he found a minerals and management service that had been plagued by corruption for years. This was the agency charged with not only providing permits, but also enforcing uh, laws governing oil drilling. Their mission is to, is to lease as much of these tracks as possible and get as much oil flowing as possible. Uh, that's like a direct conflict with saying, let's do it as safely as possible. It's much more like, let's do it as fast as possible. And no one noticed that until 2010? <laughs> People just didn't pay attention to it until Deepwater Horizon. And, you know, this happens right at the beginning of the Obama administration. And I will say, I think the Obama administration was really stung by what happened. We will cancel the pending lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico and the proposed lease sale off the coast of Virginia. Because if you remember in that campaign and when they first came into, into office, the Obama administration was talking about opening up new areas for drilling. And then Deepwater Horizon happens. And I think they were like, whoa, wait a minute. This needs a complete re rethink the way that we're doing this. This is not being done well. And so they break up the Minerals Management Service into three separate agencies, each one of which is in charge of a particular area of the offshore regulatory system. So the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management comes into existence, is in charge of managing the leasing process and lease sales. Uh, the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement um, is created, uh, and they're in charge of, of you know, regulating safety and environmental performance. And then the Office of Natural Resource Revenue is created, and they're in charge of managing the money. So like the dollars are not getting mixed up with 
leasing, the the environmental safety is not getting mixed up with leasing. There's three separate you know agencies that are in charge of each one of those areas. That's a huge reform that happens after uh, Deepwater Horizon. And then there's of course like other you know very technology specific regulations that happen that require oil companies to have certain kinds of blowout preventers to have you know certain specific types of technology to adhere to you know additional inspections and things like that. But the biggest reform is the complete rethink of the way that the whole offshore industry in the U.S. is regulated. You drill, you learn. You spill, you learn. New laws, you learn. But we still have spills. How come? In a minute, on Today Explained. Support for Today Explained comes from How I Built This, which comes from Wondery. Behind every successful business is a story. Some of them are, in fact, kind of surprising. On the podcast How I Built This, host Guy Raz talks to founders behind the world's biggest companies to figure out how they did what they did. For example, Shobani's first yogurt factory, you won't believe where it was discovered. And the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. It does. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt, failure, clarity, overcoming setbacks. How I Built This is all about innovation and creativity from some of the biggest names in the business. You can follow How I Built This wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. And for more business content such as this, you can listen on Wondery. With shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more, Wondery means business. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile is so cheap that Mint Mobile knows you think there must be a catch. Mint Mobile says, no, there is no catch. And for a limited time, their wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com explained. That's mintmobile.com explained. You could cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com explained. There's a $45 upfront payment that's required that's equivalent to $15 a month. This is for new customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan, and additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. All right, Sam, we've had a handful of disastrous spills, countless smaller ones, we learn lots of lessons, create lots of rules, but we still have spills. How much oil is spilling into U.S. waters these days? The amount of oil that's going in, just to put it in perspective, you know, 500,000 gallons, what does that look like? What does that mean? Uh, it's about the size of an Olympic swimming pool. So just, just one Olympic swimming pool a year? Just one. How bad is this one in California right now? Is that only an Olympic-sized swimming pool? Not that that's not bad, but not as bad as I maybe thought it was? It's a major spill, uh, without question. Uh, and so I think estimates uh, up till right now are somewhere in the neighborhood of, let's say, 140,000 gallons of oil spilled uh, off the coast of California. Still a major spill when you think about it spread, you know, in a, in a paper-thin sheen uh, over the top of the ocean. 
Give me a sense of how much offshore oil drilling is still being done in this country at this point. So in 2019, total U.S. production of crude oil was about 12.3 million barrels per day. That's just across onshore, offshore, all U.S. production of crude oil. Offshore oil production, which is like heavily concentrated in the federal, in the Gulf of Mexico, was about 1.9 million barrels per day. So, you know, you're talking 15% or so of, of total U.S. crude production coming from the Gulf of Mexico. I know you said there's a certain level of accepted risk, but have there been problems that haven't yet been fixed? There is, I think, an interesting question or important question to ask about the fundamental approach to safety regulation for the offshore oil industry in the United States. And, you know, this is something that in the aftermath of Deepwater Horizon, the Deepwater Horizon, you know, the commission on the spill, which, you know, I know this sounds crazy, but for anybody who's interested in this, I highly recommend the Deepwater Horizon Commission's official report. It's one of the most gripping public policy documents you will ever read. Uh, It will absolutely give you a deep history and appreciation for the industry, how it evolved, and what caused all these things to happen. And Deep cut. One of the things they recommended was that the U.S. kind of shift away from this very technology mandate-heavy approach to regulation and shift to something more like a performance-based set of standards. And right now, you know, the, a lot of the regulation for offshore oil and gas in the U.S. amounts to the, the federal government telling industry, you know, you should have this piece of equipment or that piece of equipment or this type of, you know, drill or this type of pipe. And that approach really puts a lot of onus on the regulator to know what is the right type of equipment, what is the most safe type of equipment, what is the safest type of technology, when, you know, it's probably pretty hard for the regulators to know that. The industry knows it much better. The regulators don't know it as well. Um, and so it's kind of, a, I think, a backward system. Other countries, Norway, major offshore oil producer, the United Kingdom, major offshore oil producer, Canada, these places have adopted uh, a much different approach to regulation, which is much more about um, performance-based standards, telling the industry that you have to achieve these particular performance standards to be able to maintain your kind of social license to operate in these places. Um, And it's much more about having the industry prove to the regulator that they can operate safely. They have to produce a safety case for projects that that prove to the regulator that they can operate safely in, in terms of environmental performance offshore. And if they can't prove it, they can't work. They don't get the leases. They don't get to work. So why doesn't the United States do that? The dominant component, the dominant element of the culture in the industry and in the political system that has sort of been captured in many parts of the country by the industry is produce, produce, produce. I mean, remember, these are thousands of, there's thousands of jobs. You're talking about thousands of jobs. You're talking about a huge, even today. So, I mean, like, maybe we're, people would argue like we're past like the huge boom days of you know, the of $20 billion a year of revenue. And sure, we are. But even today, the industry still generates, you know, four or $5 billion a year of revenue uh, for the federal government. And some of that's flowing to the states. You're talking about revenue, you're talking about jobs, you know, the revolving door between the industry and state and, and local and federal politics in those states. They have not been willing to support a, this kind of, like a fundamental change to safety. To put it in two words, repeating one of them, the reason is drill baby drill. A big part of the reason is drill baby drill. Drill baby drill. Drill baby drill. Drill baby drill. 
you can't let uh, sort of the American consumer off the hook either. I mean, at the end of the day, the argument has, from the industry has been tighter regulation will lead to higher costs. And it, on some level, it's true, right? You could imagine concocting some kind of regulatory system that would produce zero spills ever. But the cost of that system would be very high. And so the typical American consumer, like, you know, you can't even, we can't even raise the gas tax to keep pace with inflation. The typical American consumer is, in some ways, has kind of accepted that this is the trade-off. This is our national system of producing and distributing oil for the transportation economy. This is what we live with. And there hasn't been anything that's happened, really, that's caused people to sort of revolt and uh, be willing to, to tolerate higher costs. So is it kind of like we're going to have oil spills as long as we have offshore drilling and we're going to have offshore drilling as long as, you know, 90% of our transportation is based on fossil fuels? Is it that simple? I think it is that simple. But I do think that it's important to say, like, we, the regulatory system as it exists today is tolerates, obviously, way less oil spills than it did 30, 40 years ago. So it's important to understand this, you know, what is the scale of the problem that we're talking about? I would say that the U.S. offshore oil and gas industry is still vulnerable to low probability, high impact catastrophic incidents. And there's no doubt, you know, one thing we haven't really talked much about is like the Trump administration definitely rolled back multiple safety reforms that were passed in the wake of Deepwater Horizon. And so many people are, would argue that the U.S. is more susceptible now than it was, you know, it, in 2016 to a low probability, high impact catastrophic incident. That's 100%, I would say, true. But it's also true that the, the, that in terms of like routine incidents, it's way less than it was. It's, it, we're, not, we're not dealing with a, with a system today that is, that is producing the frequency or size of oil spills you know, that it was in the 1970s or 80s or 90s. It's a tiny fraction of that amount. So essentially what you're saying is things are arguably the best they've ever been since we started offshore drilling in this country, but we're just one cataclysmic error from having the next biggest oil spill we ever had. It's true. Yes. Well, on that note, Sam, thank you. Thank you for having me. Sam Ori, Executive Director of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. Our show today was produced by Victoria Chamberlain. I'm Sean Ramos. I'm here to remind you that the Deepwater Horizon Commission Report, formerly known as Deepwater, the Gulf Oil Disaster, and the Future of Offshore Drilling, is, according to Sam, the Citizen Kane of Commission Reports. Let me tell you something. I'm not exaggerating when I say that that if you have a chance to flip through that the commission's report, you will be surprised. You will not want to put it down. Read the first few pages and you'll be hooked.
more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. Anthropic.